I like it. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior Journal Club webinar. Uh, recently, we have been celebrating the best of JNEB, but today we have a special presentation of SNEB's most recent position paper, Food and Nutrition Insecurity Among College Students. Position papers provide a comprehensive discussion of SNEB's policy on a topic. Position paper topics are suggested by a group of SNEB members and follow an extensive workflow and review process. Position paper topics can be submitted at any time to the SNEB Journal Committee. Uh, once I'm done talking, I'll put a link in the chat where you can learn more about the position paper process. Before we get started with the webinar, I'd like to go over a few pieces of information. Uh, first of all, captions are available via Zoom, uh, you can access those via the toolbar at the bottom of your screen. Uh, I will be linking to the um, position paper itself. At the end of the questions, we will take questions um, throughout the presentation. Please put any questions you have into the uh, chat box or into the Q&A uh, box, and they will be moderated out. When the webinar ends today, you will be prompted to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete that survey as your feedback is greatly appreciated for future SNEB webinars. This webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SNEB members in the webinar section of the website. Finally, watch for a follow-up email to be sent in the next few days, uh, which will include a link to the recording for the session uh, and the slide handouts. I will now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen Filippo, teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Kristen. Thank you, Paul. 
today our presenters are Meg Brunig and Melissa Laska. Meg Brunig is a professor and head of the Department of Nutritional Sciences at Penn State University. Her research focuses on the social and environmental factors that promote nutritional well-being for underserved youth and families. She has published extensively in the area of food and nutrition security of college students and was the co-author of the SNAB position paper. Distinguished McKnight University Professor, Division of Epidemiology and Community Health, Dr. Melissa Glasgow's experience or expertise is in nutrition promotion, food access, and nutrition-related inequities. Over the past two decades, she has led a multifaceted research portfolio with the goal of realizing our potential to support communities, specifically those that have been historically under-resourced in their autonomy to make healthy choices including healthy food choices. Her interdisciplinary work has been supported by NIH, CDC, and USDA, and she has co-authored nearly 200 peer-reviewed publications to date. I wanna thank them both for sharing their expertise with us. And at this point, I can pass it over to our presenters. Thanks so much, Kristen. Um, we are really excited to be here. Melissa and I have a long history of collaborating around food and nutrition uh, security for college students. Um, so it was really great to have this um, almost be a culminating point of our collaboration and, and glad to be able to share this position paper with, with everyone on the webinar today. So we wanted to really start with what the position of SNEB is around food and nutrition security for college students. So college students, particularly those from underserved communities with lower incomes are a population at risk for food and nutrition insecurity. Nutrition educators and other health professionals have a professional obligation to collaborate with other stakeholders to improve policies, systems, and environment and research to alleviate food insecurity and promote nutrition security among college students. Um, so today what we're going to do is provide an overview of the position paper and we're going to tag team a, a little bit. We really wanted to start with this, this point um, that it seems like over the past 10 to 15 years that there's increasing evidence of concern of, of food insecurity on college campuses. And, and we want to acknowledge that while this work is really critically important, so is the other populations that are that are facing food and nutrition insecurity. And so uh, this is a both and kind of situation where we you know, that we think it's very important and as nutrition professionals that we address uh, college students as well as those are vulnerable in other, other settings. And Paul uh, provided a, a little bit of uh, an overview through the link of the position paper process, but we wanted to catch everybody up to, to the extent uh, to which uh, this, this position paper was created. Um, so, as was indicated, there was a call for authors around a topic that was pitched by SNEB members. And uh, once uh, Melissa and I were, were selected as, as co-authors, we were to uh, present an outline to the position paper committee, which provided uh, feedback and uh, suggestions on that outline. And then we drafted our first version of our manuscript. And there were several iterations in which many uh, folks were involved, including uh, the position paper committee review. It was also sent out um, separately once those uh, comments were incorporated to a full SNEB member review, as well as, the, as some subgroups within SNEB. 
And then it was, it was sent out to peer review several times. And then finally, we have a published manuscript that we're talking about today. So current uh, measurement approaches indicate that uh, food and nutrition security are endemic on college campuses. And, and much of these data are collected with convenient samples that show that upwards of 30 to 50% of college students are reporting some instances of, of food insecurity, as well as other um, basic needs insecurity, and that we see uh, differential rates by, by different populations. And we'll dig into this a little bit further. So as I mentioned, uh, most of the studies, there's been several reviews that have been published that, that indicate 30 to 50% on average, uh, college students, particularly undergraduates are reporting uh, food, food insecurity. There was a paper published in 2020 that, that used um, CPS data that indicated um, households with college students and, and those not attending college really had a, a lower rate. And just last week, um, Melissa was involved in a publication in JNEB that used the panel study of income dynamics uh, across several years. Uh, this is a repeated cross-section that showed 15% of, of food insecurity among a represented sample, uh, representative sample. Again, parents in this sample reported on behalf of the household, so that was included in, in the study. And then um, during the pandemic, uh, NCES conducted a study uh, using the National Post-Secondary Student Aid Study, which indicated a higher rate of, of 23%. And, and as I hope everyone is aware, the national rate has increased this year uh, to, to over 12%, almost 13%. So this is still on, on average higher than the national rate. And we see higher uh, rates among those vulnerable populations that we see in the in national samples. So students of color, those who are parents, first-generation college students, veterans, international students, and those students who identify as LGBTQIA+, are, are reporting significantly higher rates of, of food insecurity on college campuses. Um, and there's increased barriers to accessing food assistance. Uh, to, particularly for college students. And Melissa is going to be talking about this more in depth in, in a little while. We know that food insecurity uh, among the general sample is related to poor outcomes, but we, we see this perpetuated in college students as well. Uh, we see lower um, dietary quality and, and therefore lower nutrition security among uh, college students who are reporting food insecurity. We see significantly higher rates of mental health issues, um, including three to five times higher rates of anxiety and stress among those reporting food insecurity. We see impacts on academic performance uh, with lower GPAs objectively and, and self-reported. Um, and, and this manifests in some, some pretty severe mental health issues for, for students um, to, to the point of higher rates of um, suicidality as well. It is important to talk about uh, measurement when we talk about um, food insecurity in college students. And, and uh, there is no validated measure of food insecurity, insecurity for college students. Uh, and this slide is, is uh, a paper from uh, Cassandra Nicholas, who reviewed the different ways in which folks are assessing food insecurity on college campuses. Um, so not only are um, 
a variety of different measures being used, but also a variety of different timelines, whether it's over the past 12 months, over the past 30 days, or sometimes over the past semester or other um, approaches. And so there's a lack of consistency in the ways in which we are assessing uh, food insecurity in college campuses, which may be part of the reason why we're seeing such fluctuations in, in the reports. And, and we know that college students are differentially re responding to our gold standard measures. And this is a study looking at um, the six item screener, the 10 item adult food, food security module, um, as well as some, some screening out approaches. And as different approaches are used within the same sample, we're seeing different, different impacts of food insecurity. And one of the reasons why this is so critical is we wanna be able to, to assess the most vulnerable population, those that are, are truly facing uh, food insecurity. And, and this continues to be in question um, as we have seen in, in some of my own research that students are reporting food insecurity even when they have unlimited access to meals. And so these data are showing different meal plans and the rates of, of food insecurity across meal plans. And so um, there needs to be additional work in understanding what's going on with college students around, around measurements and, 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 and what's, how they're experiencing food insecurity. As we know that access to different, there's, college students have access to different resources. And, and so be it by being able to identify measurement, stronger measures for college students, we can identify those who are most vulnerable. Melissa. Sorry, you would think I would know how to get off mute by now into our Zoom journey, but thank you all, it just took me a minute. Um, so I, I'm gonna take it um, this part of the webinar and talk about how we've seen our um, community kind of largely at a national level um, address campus food insecurity. I'm gonna be talking about programmatic approaches first at a really high level and then um, doing a little bit of an overview on policy efforts. Um, so if you can click through Meg. I'll be starting by talking about campus food pantries and the um, other types of programming that we see on campuses. So campus food pantries, um, you all are likely familiar with these. You've maybe seen them. If you're on a campus, you maybe have them. Hundreds and hundreds of campus food pantries exist across the United States. They vary in size and scope um, from just having a, you know, a couple of shelves available for students to take food to much larger um, experiences for students, some of which have only food, some of which offer other products. There's really a lot of heterogeneity that we see in um, campus pantries at the current moment. Next slide. Um, so it, by far, I would say this seems to be one of the most common approaches to address food insecurity on campuses. Um, often these are run from, from what we've seen by um, student support services, staff that are located on the campus, in some cases, students themselves. Unfortunately, many of these campus food pantries are really operating with very limited monetary support from institutions. 
if you can click again, that we really are having our pantries rely on significantly on donations, on volunteer efforts, many of which are from students. Um, and, and a chunk of the students that are volunteering are students that are in need themselves or have previously been on the, in need of um, food pantry services. And so we're, we're kind of, it seems like we're, we're putting a little bit of a burden maybe back on the, the folks who are needing these services the most to, to funnel volunteer um, efforts and make these pantries run. Um, limited in-kind institutional support. Uh, what we see from the qualitative work that we've done in Minnesota is that often um, folks that are running food pantries are happy to have colleges and universities provide space for them at no cost to find a closet or a corner that they can operate out of and really don't necessarily feel like they have the power to ask for more um, to support their efforts. Next slide. In positive news, we have seen um, local innovation. So in that there's heterogeneity in the food pantries and um, what we've seen on campuses and in that ideas are percolating at different campuses, we see things like different kinds of effort to reduce stigma, doing away with screening, for example, where students would have to provide evidence of just how food insecure they are in order to get food. Um, we're seeing creative ways of meeting basic needs beyond food, so providing personal hygiene, providing cleaning products, other household products, providing support services like enrollment assistance in getting into SNAP or um, financial aid assistance or other kind of housing needs support. Um, so, so there is some creativity and thinking about broadening the scope of the pantries and what um, they can provide. Um, we have limited research, though, on the effectiveness of campus food pantries at this moment. We do have evidence around who's using the pantries and kind of usage st statistics and characteristics. Um, and, and they certainly are, there is evidence that there is demand for certain for these pantries. But in terms of how much of an effect the pantries have on overall food security, I would say at this point in time, we really don't know. And that's important evidence that we're going to need to look at. Um, I think the general feeling is that these campus food pantries and food pantries in general were meant to are meant to provide emergency assistance under emergency conditions. And so while they need to exist as a suite of options that we can use to help students and others in need, we need to be focusing on other tools in the toolkit to kind of support a broad-based effort to prevent and then also address food and nutrition insecurity. Next slide. In addition to um, campus pantries, we see a variety of other kinds of programmatic um, strategies used on campus. One that many of you have likely heard of is Swipe Out Hunger, their meal donation programming, um, where students on campuses can donate meals from their meal plan to be used by students in need. And this is in conjunction with folks like Aramark and Sodexo and, and those that run the food service operations on campus. Um, it's, it's a relatively, I would say, a resource efficient uh, program, it seems, on the outset where the, the most um, effort needed, there's large effort that's, or, or notable effort that's needed around getting the meal donations and then um, get, issuing them to students in need, but there's not the effort in actually garnering the food themselves and distributing the food themselves, which really creates an efficiency that's nice. Unfortunately, 
in our anecdotal experience, there have been some real significant limitations that um, have in some cases been set on how many meals can be donated. So for example, at the University of Minnesota at one point in time, the, the limitation was that a thousand meals could be donated per semester. And when you have a campus of over 50,000 students, that impact becomes quite small. Not to say that it's not worth doing, but it does become quite small. We also have um, all sorts of programs. I just put farm-based programming, student farms, and other kinds of ag-oriented programs and food recovery programs on here as examples, but certainly that's not the end of it. We have a lot of programmatic support, again, which try to um, provide this bolstering and this, um, this, this collaborative effect, hopefully, with supporting food pantries. Um, however, a lot of this work is really, um, really energy intensive, resource intensive. It takes very, very committed staff, often who it's not their job to run these programs, but they do it um, to, to, because of their dedication to the cause. And I, I think there's a, concern that there's so much effort that can be needed to make these programs operational sometimes that there's really could be a risk of burnout among the folks that are that are working the hardest on the ground to make progress for our students. So a suite of options available, but some of which are um, are pretty energy intensive. Next slide, please. We see campus task forces proliferating across campuses. Certainly these are this is a really important step for campuses, especially early on as they're starting to identify needs and identify opportunities on campus. It's incredibly important that when these campus task forces are formed, that they're able to integrate across disciplinary scope. And so you're integrating key members from various disciplines, various um, uh, units on campus, various roles. So, so you're able to really um, identify a holistic picture of needs and opportunities on campus. Many of the task forces that we see are localized and focusing on what can be done on a specific campus. We do see some across campuses, but I would argue that there can be much more work done in connecting campuses. So um, campuses, particularly those that traditionally have had fewer resources, aren't kind of left to reinvent the wheel, that they can really capitalize on work that's being done by by nearby institutions. And I would argue that at the state level, I think campus task forces can be incredibly important in terms of garnering state support, state attention, and working with some of our um, the assistance programs that come through the state. Next slide. Um, so now let's shift and turn to think about policy efforts, big P policy efforts. Next slide. The one that we often talk about is SNAP. Um, so SNAP has eligibility criteria, permanent eligibility criteria that really reflect outdated student stereotypes. The, the idea is that most students who are enrolled half-time or more in college aren't eligible to receive SNAP unless they eat, meet one of a series of exemptions. Um, I listed a few of the ones that we see most often here on the slide. Um, so for example, they participate in work study, they work at least 20 hours per week, not seasonally, but consistently work 20 hours per week and can document that. If they have a dependent, those are cases where people can get SNAP uh, or are eligible to get SNAP if they meet other criteria like income criteria. 
And these rules really reflect kind of the outdated notion that um, that people that go to college are of a privileged class or of a privileged place in society where if they can afford tuition, they must be able to afford lots of other things and they must have families or other benefactors that are kind of sponsoring them on the way. And while maybe that was true decades ago, we know for a fact that that's not true now. And we have a lot of low income students who are really trying to better their lives and have some positive impact for themselves, their family, their future generations, and, um, and, and are not coming from a place of privilege or financial security. Next slide, please. One of the big wins that we saw was um, the temporary changes in SNAP that went into place with um, the COVID pandemic, with the emergency conditions. These went; these were approved in um, December of 2020, and the the eligibility was expanded for students. So, if students students could be eligible if they had zero estimated family contribution on their FAFSA, their financial aid documentation, they were eligible if they um, were eligible by their institution deemed eligible to participate in work study, but they didn't necessarily have to work in work study. So there didn't necessarily have to be a job available for them. The institution just had to say they were eligible. And if they otherwise met SNAP eligibility criteria, um, including income and other things. And so this really opened the door for um, a lot of students through some very common sense measures, a lot of students in need were able to get the support that they needed. Now, unfortunately, I have a stamp that comes on here. This expired right with the with the public health emergency conditions. Um, uh, this past summer in, in 2023. And so, you know, we'll see over time what this does in terms of um, enrollment and in terms of food insecurity among this population. Um, I think time will tell as students who are coming up for um, recertification will not no longer be eligible for the program unless they meet the permanent rule criteria. So six, 12 months down the line, we'll be kind of seeing some of the effects likely of, um, of this expiration. Next slide. So, so we have this issue, right, of there being a very narrow scope, in our opinion, of people who are students that are eligible for SNAP. And then we also have the issue of the students who are eligible for SNAP aren't necessarily getting access to SNAP. And this was really highlighted in a government accountability office paper that came out um, ahead of the pandemic. So going into the pandemic, we knew that students who were likely eligible for SNAP weren't enrolling um, at the number of 2 million uh, students the GAO estimated. Um, and, and so we, we have some ideas as to why this might be. And some of those ideas maybe have become a little more clarified since the time this was published. The GAO at the time recommended, um, it kind of highlighted that, that they felt this was a communication issue and that FNS should improve student eligibility information on its website, which I would say it has done, and then also share information on SNAP agent, state SNAP agencies' approaches to help eligible students. Um, despite uh, increasing clarity in 
SNAP rules and eligibility, uh, we still have challenges getting students enrolled. Um, and so I would say that continues to be a problem in part because we have these eligibility criteria that are changing as part of the temporary conditions related to COVID and perhaps some other reasons related to processes, applications and documentation that are necessary. Next slide. Um, so we uh, we were we've been interested in the policy efforts around food insecurity for for these students for some time, and so um, going into the pandemic, we did a, um, a federal legislative review, a federal policy um, uh, overview, looking at bills that were introduced in the 2019 to 2020 session um, related to college food insecurity. And we see, unfortunately, well, I say unfortunately, but most of the, the bills that were introduced were for things like small grant programs where they would provide colleges and universities with a small amount of funds to help bolster their efforts in these areas. And I think maybe to help them figure out some innovations that they could do locally. But um, the, in terms of addressing SNAP, we did have some bills introduced to address the eligibility issue, and we had some bills introduced to um, address the enrollment issue among people that are already eligible. Um, unfortunately, these bills were um, very kind of early on in terms of being introduced, not really having made it through committee in many cases, um, not having a ton of co-sponsors. And, um, and, and so, so I would say at the federal level, there's still pushing that's going on, but this issue, um, this issue is far from being solved even at this point. Um, and if you click again, we also had a sister, a companion paper. Both of these papers were published in JNEB. There was a state review of um, policies that had been enacted or proposed up to March of 2020. We've seen more success at the state level um, in general than we have at the federal level. So we've seen things like hunger-free campus acts, um, expanded eligibility for ENT programs, the SNAP restaurant program in California. And many of these California led the way for a number of these policies and then other states were able to follow suit. Um, I would say the 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 relative impact of the state level provisions um, or the state level bills may be somewhat less than what a federal policy would be able to do um, because of states more limited control over the SNAP program. But we are at least seeing headway at a state level. Next slide. Um, I just wanted to to mention in a little more detail the Hunger Free Campus Act because this is um, an act that has been uh, most widespread across states. A number of states have introduced um, and or passed a Hunger Free Campus Act to date. Um, they they have some varying criteria depending on the state, but much of the criteria is similar. Um, so for a school to be a hunger-free campus under um, this act, again, it varies a bit state to state, but generally speaking, they would need to have a campus food pantry or a partnership with an outside inst uh, institution or entity to bring campus, to bring food on campus for distribution as a, as a pantry would. They need to provide information to students on SNAP um, and also other federal programs that could help um, with, with students' bottom line. 
They need to participate in meal sharing program, hold one hunger awareness event per year, have a task force. Um, in some cases, they need to have an emergency assistance grant available for students. Um, in most of these cases, most but not all, being a hunger-free campus came along with um, small institutional grants that could be received to kind of funnel some funds into efforts to address food insecurity on campus. In some of these cases, matching funds were required. Um, in, some, in some cases, not necessarily. Next slide, please. I wanted to... Um, in terms of the focus on programmatic solutions versus policy solutions, not that we need to have a versus, I like that we could have a both, but I, I wanted to kind of highlight this case study for Minnesota that I think is, um, is similar to the experience that other states had moving through the pandemic. If you can click through, um, we did uh, qualitative interviews with campus stakeholders, really with the folks that were running the campus food insecurity programs, whatever that may be, whether it was pantry or um, food vouchers, uh, meal vouchers or other kinds of programs on campus. We did this in the fall of 2020. So in that semester when everybody was returning after all the shutdowns to find out what were folks doing, where were they at, what was the, you know, to kind of take the temperature of, of how how they were feeling in their programmatic initiatives. And if you can click through, we heard so much about food shelves, meal donations, mobile markets, food recovery, all, uh, you know, all kinds of programmatic efforts. I would say the vast majority, incredibly labor intensive. We were interviewing, in, in my opinion, a, a cohort of such dedicated staff members that I was really concerned we're on the verge of, of, of burnout because of how much they were working. And again, because I mentioned this before, because they were doing these things. And, and in our experience, these things that they were running were not necessarily part of their job description. They had a different job on campus and were just engaging in these because of their commitment to the students. Next um, and we heard very, very little about SNAP from these campus stakeholders, many of whom were academic advisors or student support staff or admin. They weren't nutrition professionals. We heard things like SNAP eligibility rules are a disaster. I don't know the ins and outs. We don't have good data. Um, if you remember, this was in the at the end of the Trump administration as well. And so among folks that were thinking about SNAP, they were feeling discouraged anyway. And next slide or next click. And then what we what we did here among six campuses that said that they were doing anything around SNAP, this is in the fall of 2020, we heard um, about hanging flyers, about holding awareness events, about um, things that were unfortunately fairly, um, fairly passive ways of getting students to know about SNAP. Um, and there just wasn't the awareness or the resources um, 
for, for people to broadly understand SNAP and understand how to enroll in SNAP. And this, I would say, was really, really concerning to us. I think we've, I would say generally, certainly in Minnesota, but my sense is broadly across states, we've made some progress with, with a building awareness around SNAP for college students, especially with the temporary um, eligibility loosening during the pandemic. But I think we still have a ways to go on this. And in Minnesota, one of the really important things that, that was done was we started a statewide partnership, um, the Minnesota SNAP for Students State Coalition, where partners from 32 schools, as well as other entities, DHS, the Office of Higher Education at the state level, um, Second Harvest, a variety of hunger relief organizations came together in uh, the spring of 2020 to start to strategize what can we do. And the group actually ran a 10-week boot camp on SNAP training for academic advisors, for staff members dealing with you know, community college and technical college and other college stakeholders that were um, doing, doing, working with students around food insecurity, but didn't necessarily have the background around SNAP. And found that this group was so productive in being able to share resources and to share best approaches and um, troubleshoot problems with DHS on the line, for example, that the meetings have been continued to go on, not at a, on a weekly basis, now it's on a semester basis, but really forming an active network and strategizing how can we best connect our students in need with SNAP and particularly trying to bring in campuses that, again, haven't traditionally had a lot of resources and being able to, to, to help link them up with resources that already existed in getting students through the door. Next slide. Um, some of the some of the things that happened also that were incredibly effective. I, well, we, we it's it's I would say we don't have hard data, but I so I shouldn't say they were incredibly effective. But some of the things that I think were a great idea and and in good effort that happened during the pandemic was. Um, in Minnesota, we took the lead from Massachusetts, where our Office of Higher Education at the state level worked with DHS, where OHI, or the Office of Higher Education, directly sent notifications to all students um, who, uh, who reported that they had zero estimated family contribution on their FAFSA, making them um, potentially eligible for SNAP through the temporary conditions. And through sending them this notification, the notification itself could then serve of documentation of having 0% estimated family contribution. They did not have to pull additional documentation to show um, that part of SNAP eligibility. And um, really trying to get past this Apologies, everyone. I will uh, take over from <laughs> for Melissa. I wasn't sure if it was my my computer or not. Um, so um, 
really the approach was was not to be a passive approach, but to to send out um, recommendations to any student who might be eligible to encourage them to explore uh, participating in SNAP. And in the, in the state of Minnesota, um, can everybody hear me okay? Okay, thank you. Okay, so in the state of Minnesota, um, in order to be a hunger-free campus designation, um, they must provide information to, to students about participating in, in SNAP um, and, and to address food insecurity. And so this led to the ability to track students over time on, on um, SNAP enrollment. And, and as you can see from these data, uh, that they've been seeing an increase, a significant increase in, in participation in SNAP by, by college students. And they've been able to track these changes um, prior to the pandemic and, and over time to, to see these, these changes persisting. And now with, with SNAP eligibility changing for college students, you know, it'd be interesting to see how, how these change. Um, but, but as you can see here, um, SNAP enrollment is significantly increasing in, in the state of Minnesota. Which, which leads us to our call to action for um, the position paper. And I'm not sure if anybody <laughs> read the paper yet, but we have a lot of calls to action. Uh, there's a lot of work to do in this space. And I think, you know, I, Melissa talked about this idea of normalizing this historic normalization of food and nutrition insecurity among college students. I've had students say this to me, you know, I, I just thought this was normal, you know, that I was supposed to eat ramen all the time. And, and we know it, you know, it isn't um, normal. Um, and so our call to action really centered around high quality research. As we started the presentation with, you know, a lot of the data that, that have been collected thus far is, is convenient samples. And, and so we really don't have a great understanding of, of the scope and depth of, of the, the problem of food insecurity. Um, in, in this population, which, you know, calls to um, the need for national surveillance around college food insecurity. Now, NCES did this in, in 2020, um, but with a measure that, that has not yet been validated for college students. And so um, identifying um, stronger measures to be able to assess what the, what the real impact of food and nutrition insecurity on college campuses is, is needed. Um, we also need a better understanding of um, how we're impacting college food insecurity and, and evaluations and, and rigorous evaluations of those, those interventions. Um, and, and understanding how food and nutrition insecurity impacts other factors such as um, discrimination and racism and, um, and, and other factors uh, that are impacting students who are vulnerable. We need a better understanding of, of populations that are historically under underrepresented in, in these studies. You know, most of the, the research has focused on public institutions. Um, more, more work is needed in, in private and, and um, among two-year institutions um, for, for students coming from, from different settings. As Melissa so adeptly indicated, you know, the the college student population has shifted over time. And so it's not surprising that we're seeing higher rates of, of food and nutrition insecurity, but we, we also need um, better interventions to, to help those students who are, who are vulnerable. 
um, improve collaborations across disciplines. I don't I think anyone probably on this webinar think that that um, nutrition educators and nutritionists and dietitians and those working in, in academia are are the um, have the only solutions. And and in order to identify the best solutions, we need to collaborate across across disciplines. Um, and and to move towards more policy systems and environmental changes. You know, Melissa presented a case study from from Minnesota and on how they tried to impact policy level solutions around food insecurity to to promote SNAP use among college students, but um, you know, not solely relying on emergency food systems and identifying ways that we can scale our our interventions to help those most in need is is needed in the field. And, and finally, using trauma-informed care when, when possible, if not always, you know, these students are facing lots of barriers and in order to promote their, their success on college campuses, we, we need to um, approach this with a trauma-informed solution-oriented um, interventions. So we've talked a lot about SNAP eligibility. We need to, to better promote that. Um, and, and finally, we, we strongly recommend that pandemic SNAP ex expansion should become permanent. And this should be an advocacy point for, for SNEB and others um, in this area. And then finally, you know, um, College students have been studied because because they're a captive audience. We don't really have a great understanding of food and nutrition security for those outside of college campuses. And so to understand emerging adults more generally and how we can better promote food and nutrition security for them is, is also needed. And this work is done in a larger backdrop, I think, in which many of us are, are engaged and involved. Um, last year, the Biden-Harris administration on um, hunger, nutrition, and health really emphasizes the need for improved food access and afford affordability. And so there's an opportunity for us to couch this work within pillar one um, to, to promote it within um, the larger scale interventions to, to address food insecurity in, in the United States. So what is our role as nutrition professionals? Um, Many of us are working in, in university settings and, and this positions us uh, you know, in a unique way to engage with students to identify uh, lived experience policy level solutions uh, to address food and nutrition security. Um, we have a good understanding of those PSE interventions and those I plus PSE interventions um, and, and evaluation approaches. And so you know, for us to help support what universities are doing uh, to, to address this, but to, to have more rigorous evaluations as well. Um, we have the capacity to intervene and, and um, join with other interprofessional groups to uh, work on policy systems and environmental changes and environmental informed programming to, to really address the root causes of food and nutrition insecurity on college campuses. Um, as well as training and um, advocating uh, to be as key leaders in, in this space. So with that, um, we wanna thank all those that were involved in putting this position paper together. Um, 
specifically the, there's a lot of groups within SNEB. Uh, there was the um, position paper, uh, I think it was a work workforce group. Um, there were specific SNEB members as part of the higher education group that, that also uh, contributed, as well as um, uh, Karen Chapman, who helped facilitate the process of of from the out from the from the outset, and then finally um, the peer reviewers who who helped to strengthen the the position paper. And with that, I will stop and answer any questions. And hopefully, Melissa will rejoin us. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing about the position paper. Um, if people have questions, you can put those either in the Q and A box or in the webinar chat. Uh, one question that I had. Uh, that was mentioned a few times was the burden that is on the people doing the work. What policies or what uh, modifications would you suggest to college campuses uh, to alleviate some of that burden or make sure that the people doing the work don't experience burnout? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think this is true in, in most aspects of, of all of our work. Um, you know, I think Melissa highlighted the point that oftentimes um, students are volunteering. And so if we can create paid positions, you know, at Penn State, we've actually um, endowed our food pantry. And so there is a paid staff per person there helping to facilitate the student leaders. And then some of those student leaders then are then are paid as well. And so using work studies and, and other systems to help support not perpetuating the problem of, of need, I think, among students and, and staff and faculty is, is helpful. Um, but also these policy systems, environmental changes, so that it isn't a one-on-one -on -one, um, approach all the time. It's not solely relying on the emergency food um, system and creating other systems to provide access to, to healthy, affordable foods for students is, is needed. Yeah, thank you. Um, another question, what about graduate students, especially international students? In terms of risk of food insecurity, yes, there, we, this, there's data to suggest that those, those students are at higher risk. And then oftentimes um, those students aren't eligible for federal food assistance programs. And so that's where the, the emergency food system and other, other food donation programs are, are critically important. And then have you found that colleges and universities are open to making work study jobs for pantries or other food security endeavors? I think it depends on the college campus. Um, I definitely there there are some examples out there. Um, and I think more and more there's, you know, an understanding that um there's a subset of students who are really struggling and and to tie that to the food pantry through work study jobs, I think is is increasing. And that does lead back to what was mentioned earlier about how often the students who are volunteering are the ones who have either previously had need or currently have needs. So then maybe they're getting work experience doing that instead. Have you observed any effect of campus layout on food access? For instance, dining places being far from classrooms or lack of dining places? You know, it's interesting. You know, I presented some data that, um, that indicated even students with meal plans were, were reporting having strug struggling at, with access to food. And at that institution, um, 
dining halls were readily accessible and accessible, you know, 24 seven. And so there were, there were options. I, th I think, again, it depends on, on college campuses. More and more students are able to use their meal plans, you know, at more central locations and, 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 and sometimes even off campus. And so working with your institution to be creative on, on how um, they can access food. We do, there has been research to um, assess the healthfulness of the food environment on college campuses. And oftentimes uh, this is a, a place of growth for college campuses as they partner with often um, fast food or quick service um, places that have less, often have some healthful options, but but less of them. And oftentimes those are more expensive as well. So that I think this is another area of opportunity for nutrition professionals to, to contribute. What other ways could a college campus engage in a PSC change besides helping students with SNAP? Have you seen transportation assistance, housing assistance, a basic needs coordinator, or anything like that? Absolutely. All of those things uh, we've observed at Penn State, we have um, a, a, a coalition and a, and a basic needs coordinator where uh, students are surveyed on a regular basis and then individual level outreach is, is done to them. Um, to support access to SNAP or access, you know, trying to find access to other resources. And so all of those, I think, are, are excellent strategies. I think a, a good first step is to identify how, how a campus can, can identify as a hunger-free campus within your institution and, and then to, to come together to identify what PSE interventions are appropriate for your local institution. Are there tools or techniques you have found that work well to overcome the stigma that some students associate with food pantry usage? That's a really great question. Um, you know, I I think the lessons we've learned in other other ways around stigma around food insecurity apply that similarly to college students, um, where having um, access available to everyone, promoting access available to everyone, um, really sort of normalizing the, the use of it um, and normalizing that this is a widespread issue on college campuses has helped, but also in terms of branding um, the material so that that it, it feels less um, stigmatizing to use them, I think is also helpful. Is there any specific data on commuter students' incidents of food insecurity? Off the top of my head, I, I can't think of something specific, but what I will say is that there are some national efforts that look at two-year institutions um, and community colleges, which tend to be more commuter-based. And in that, they, they, the rates of food and food insecurity tend to be higher on, on those campuses. And you had mentioned um, the importance of using a trauma-informed approaches. Do you have any resources you would recommend for people wanting to learn more about that? Mm, that's a great question. I think we cited a couple in the paper. Um, I don't have any off the tip of my tongue right now, but if that person wants to email me, I'm, I'm happy to, to share some with them. Well, I want to thank you so much. I really appreciate your work on the paper and sharing to the group about, about the work that you did. At this point, I can hand it back to Paul. Uh, thank you, Kristen. Uh, and thank you as well to Dr. Uh, Bruning and Dr. Laska.
Uh, we really appreciate uh, all of you being here today and sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, I have just a few reminders before I close out the session. Uh, again, please complete the survey that you will receive uh, after the close of the session. We do utilize your feedback for planning future webinars. Uh, be on the lookout for an email with uh, today's recording uh, and any handouts. Uh, if you enjoyed today's webinar, uh, be sure to check out the upcoming webinar section of the website. Uh, the Journal Club continues next Monday with our final session of the semester. Um, and I can give you a sneak peek that uh, Kristen is working with the FNEE division on the spring semester topic. Uh, with that being said, that concludes today's session. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.